the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. My conversation today is with Jennifer Waring, instructional coach at St. Peter the Apostle High School in Spruce Grove, Alberta. Instructional coaching has been booming in the past while for good reason. The impact on teacher learning is high. Of the people that I have heard speak on the role, Jen has a clear vision and passion for instructional coaching. In our talk, she shares her perspective on the position, some tips on how to increase success, and some other insights that I think you're going to find useful. You don't need to be in a formal coaching role to learn from our conversation, as many of these lessons will be applicable to anyone who works with others. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, or follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed, or even on Facebook. We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Now, Jen asked me to warn you, she has a tendency to speak a little quickly at times. So without warning, here's my conversation with Jen Waring. Well, hi, Jen. Welcome to Intersection Education. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Good. Um, I want to talk to you today about what sometimes we call learning coaches or instructional, instructional coaching. And, and I think I want to start with, with talking about the definition of it because it seems like every school or province or country has a different name for the role that you do. Um, like I said, we call learning coaches. Um, other people call instructional coaches, collaborative teaching partner, instructional leader. Um, let's start with telling, telling people or, or telling me what you think your role is and maybe defining that. Yeah, for sure. I think all of those terms speak to the essential function of what we call instructional coaches in my school. Um, that idea that instructional coaches are there to walk alongside teachers, but also to kind of instigate and to um, direct learning in a way that maybe teachers need. So that, that word coach is the most important part as far as I'm concerned. That idea of someone who maybe just has a picture that is slightly different than than the teacher, whether that be because of experience or um, a professional learning network that is a little bit broader or the ability to have the designated time to do to extra research and extra learning. But ultimately the idea is, is like a coach with an athlete, you know, an instructional coach with a teacher, the teacher has everything they need. They have the skills. It's just about meeting them where their needs are and helping to develop those specific parts. So in my context, instructional coaching is really about walking on side, being a partner with teachers in their learning, but also being a liaison, kind of this interesting, well, intersectional point, <laughs> you know, conveniently, um, between school-based change and uh, individual teacher change. Let's get into perhaps universally before we get back. I, I, I don't want to lose that whole idea mm -hmm. of how it's, how it's playing out at your school. But it seems like a lot of the research is coming out positively about 
uh, instructional coaching around the whole region, um, lesson of coaching. You talked about some of the ways that it takes place. Yeah. Why do you think that it is effective universally? Why do you think that um, so many places are having great success with professional learning and increasing teacher impact through the use of instructional coaches? I think the reason instructional coaching is effective um, falls into a couple of different categories. One, it's um, responsive, right? Mm -hmm. Instructional coaching is site-based most of the time, um, teacher-driven, and allows for collegial relationships between coaches and teachers to develop over time. Mm -hmm. So that ability to respond to immediate needs is a really important part of instructional coaching. Um, Essentially, the source of instructional coaching comes from within teacher practice rather than outside of teacher practice. And so while data and research and all those things can play a role, we're not top down. It's not the the pull or not the push, but it is a pull, right? So it's that idea of moving into a form of teacher learning where um, the work can happen in an ongoing manner at a site base collaboratively and really rooted in teacher practice. It gives the, all the agency to the teacher. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you say, you know, that's, that's all well and good. And mm-hmm. the agency is on the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you sometimes have to cultivate a little bit of that relationship? I imagine that, that a big part of your job is, is developing trust, is developing relationships so that when, when you help move forward, they, they think A, that you, you know, you know what you're talking about. Right. B, that they have the trust that if something goes sideways, um, there's not going to be an evaluative piece to it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, about, about that aspect. It must be a bit tricky at times. Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting position to be in because um, our work is absolutely informed by the needs of administration, right? If, if administration looks at um, accountability pillar survey results or survey results or um, diploma or PAT results, right, there are going to be needs that they identify that they want teachers and staffs to work towards. But you hit the nail on the head when you said coaching is non-evaluative. Mm-hmm. So we can't be perceived as being the henchmen, you know, or the delivery people of administration. Uh, that has negative connotations, but you know what I mean. Um, but also relationship is so, so important. And so there's this really interesting dance of inviting people to work with you in a coaching relationship, um, but needing to respect boundaries and vulnerabilities and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So I think relationship facilitation is really, really important, but I also think being of use is really important, right? So teachers um, are so, so busy as are lots of people, but there are just so many moving parts to the, the dance that is teaching, you know, and, and so many unconsciously operating decision-making and skills and all those things that to try and encourage teachers to also attend to professional learning, to put themselves in a place of vulnerability, to invite you into their space or have a pedagogical conversation at the photocopier mm-hmm. um, is a difficult thing, but really an essential thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a question for you in regards uh, to to subject and then learning specifics. Um, I know you work at a high school I and I imagine that... Um, there are two pieces of your role. There's the curricular knowledge, there's the subject specific knowledge, but then there's also good pedagogical practice. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about, about that in your role? Do you find yourself or do you find when it actually practically happens um, that you find yourself talking more about pedagogical practices or is it more around curriculum or does it really just vary on the needs of the teacher? 
I think it really varies. Um, in our school, we've adopted a system of instructional coaching over the last few years where we have subject specific instructional coaches. So I am the English language arts instructional coach at my school. And I'm also kind of, um, the head, not the head coach, but I, I kind of work as a liaison with the other coaches in our school. So that in itself means that my coaching conversations tend to be subject level conversations or subject-based conversations with pedagogy integrating in all the time. Um, I think if a coach is working in an environment where they're coaching teachers of multiple subjects, then pedagogy becomes the touch point. Um, Pedagogy becomes the in where um, teachers who are teaching a variety of different subjects can be part of the same conversation. Uh, But it's a really difficult thing, especially at a high school level where our subject specification really does direct so much of what we do. Um, And so in my experience, most of my conversations are based around subject. When I'm working with teachers, when I'm working with other coaches, that's where we get into systems of change and pedagogy and those kind of conversations, because that is our common ground. And then we can disseminate that and take it to our teachers and, and hopefully integrate that into our conversations. Yeah. Now we haven't spoken to a heck of a lot of um, high school specific kind of people. I mean, you talk about that access or the, sorry, the emphasis on, on subject, mm-hmm. any other differences that you would say um, to be aware of if someone was walking into instructional coach between uh, maybe a, a kindergarten to grade nine environment or kindergarten to grade eight environment, mm-hmm. sorry, versus a, a high school environment, which could be nine to 12 or 10 to 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My experience in coaching has been entirely in nine to 12 mm-hmm. schools. So my understanding of these differences comes from, you know, my conversations with my incredible colleagues who are working K to eight. But I would say that one of the biggest differences is for instructional coaches, in my experience at the high school level, um, shoulder to shoulder coaching isn't as easy to accomplish for a variety of reasons. And it's not necessarily a reluctance or um, a rejection of that. It's just that for high school teachers, because of usually semestered courses, everything is so urgent and everything moves so quickly. So, you know, when you look at having only five months with a group of students and an intensely dense curriculum, a lot of the time, teachers are moving at a pace that um, sometimes makes having another teacher come into your classroom a bit prohibitive because we know the best kind of shoulder to shoulder coaching doesn't happen one off, right? There's a pre-conference, there's a coaching observation, there's a post-conference, right? Or post-observation discussion. So the time of that is something for high school coaches. I think we have to be really conscious of, um, and as much as possible, having opportunities to coach embedded within the, within the teacher's time mm-hmm. is, is huge. So I would say time and urgency and pace is really important. And then I think it's important to be really sensitive to the challenges for collaboration in a high school context. Um, you know, I can collaborate with my fellow English teachers, but they're not teaching the same students I am. Right. right. And if I want to collaborate with teachers who are teaching the same students I am, so maybe I'm looking at a really specific need that's emerging from a specific group of students, they're not teaching the same subject. Mm-hmm. So unlike in an elementary context where you might have a situation where a teacher is teaching, you know, the music class and another one is doing the phys ed, or maybe there's a pullout for art and then you've got your classroom teacher, or you have a full year with these kids to really explore and kind of experiment. In high school, there's a sense of isolation, maybe siloizing that can happen, and then that urgency of pace and curriculum. And then, to be honest with you, the pressure of those provincial in Alberta, those provincial assessments, means that there's a lot of um, 
very specific conversations that take place that maybe mm-hmm. aren't necessarily around pedagogy or around the bigger issues, but rather are very specified to test results and diploma prep and post-secondary and all of those extra pressures that high school teachers encounter. You bet. Now, I can't let you go until we talk a little bit about something I know you're working on, and that's learning spurts. Mm. Um, I know you guys are using that process to to help that professional learning to kind of organize it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the sprints that, that you guys, how, how you've set it up at, at your school? And um, maybe tell, talk about the impact at a high school setting, because I think... I think we've spoken mostly to people who are at lower, mm. lower grades. And so it'd be interesting to have the perspective of how it works um, up with some of those higher grades. Yeah. So we're really fortunate that our high school is operating under the Alberta high school redesign model. Mm-hmm. And so that has allowed us to implement flex time in our schools. So uh, when we moved to flex timetabling, we recognized that our two 40 minute flex blocks a week provided really incredible opportunities for our students to meet with their teachers, but it also provided us with an incredible opportunity for our teachers to meet with other teachers. Mm -hmm. So we were given the incredible opportunity to embed professional learning community meeting time on flex blocks. So I meet with my um, English teachers once a week for 40 minutes. I have two groups. So we alternate means that I get to meet with them twice a month. And that is where we implement the sprint process. So when we first moved to this model of meeting on PLC time during flex, we were doing something similar, but um, Simon hadn't yet articulated it, you know, sprints the way they were now. But that process of reflect, meet, plan, reflect was the model we incorporated really early on. Um, mm-hmm. Terry Lynn and I, Terry Lynn Gimo and I went to a, a summer learning institute and that was kind of modeled. So for us, sprints happen well because we're able to embed them in that meeting time. Because we're meeting every two weeks, we can articulate or kind of move through sprints pretty quickly. And that is one of the single greatest Um, advantages to the sprint model because it takes on that issue I spoke about before, which is urgency and pace, right? right? So if I'm targeting a specific group of learners and I'm going to lose them in five months, I have to move through change really quickly. And so the sprint model is really allowing us to make some pretty fast strides. You know, sometimes we have to slow things down. Sometimes we have to speed things up. Um, But really that ability to use the tools to structure collaborative conversations and then to really have a process for change is really, really powerful. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, glad to hear it's working well for yeah. you as well. Let's talk about education a bit more generally now. I want to know, is there something about learning or education that you believe to be true that you get pushback on that some people or most people would disagree with you about? Um, I think one of the things about education that is universally held to be true is that it's a serious business. But I think for me, as much as I take my job and my work very seriously, I think it's a serious business that we need to take a little less seriously. And that's something that when people are caught up in the urgency of all the demands of teaching, and there are so many, you know, within the classroom and outside of the classroom, it becomes really serious business. And I think that that sometimes narrows our focus down to these really specific things, um, and I would like there to be just a little more playfulness in, in the work that we do. And at a high school level, that's hard. Um, at all levels, that's hard. We have urgent needs to meet. But I, I think that would be it. It is a serious business, but maybe it needs to be taken a little less seriously. I, I think that... Uh... I think that the advocates of play-based mm, education mm-hmm. and more play would, would agree with you. Yeah. That. Yeah. Even at the higher levels. Next question is, when you think of the term master teacher, uh, who or what comes to mind and why? I have been blessed to both learn from and work with many master teachers. 
And it would take a long time for me to name drop them all. So I maybe (laughs) won't do that. But what I will say that they have in common is an unflagging passion for the work that they do. And that sounds maybe like a conventional answer, but I I think about my high school social teacher. So I I will name drop Mr. Miklos, um, who came in every single day, just full of the joy of teaching, right? Just full of it. And so for me, I think a master teacher is someone who manages to balance all the, the busyness and the business of teaching Mm -hmm. with just that reason that we're there in the first place, right? Love of learning, love of student, love of subject, and that that can be infused with a joy that doesn't get taken from you um, over time. Do you have a favorite failure or a success, a favorite success that helped you learn important lessons? Any, any big experiences that you look back on and you say, wow, that, that really informed my practice. I really think about that and it changed the way I do things. You know, to be honest with you, I think um, one of the things that most informs my practice is the happy accident of running into former students in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, they come into my world in kind of unpredictable ways. I see them in places I wouldn't expect or reconnect with them in ways I wouldn't anticipate. And the kind of consistent message that they give me is the importance of having been seen in the work that we do. And I, I think if I think back to the various many successes and failures I've had in my career. I think the successes have come when I've remembered to see them, Mm -hmm. to see those students in front of me for who they are authentically and clearly. And I think the failures have come when I've forgotten that, when I've been caught up in the business and the busyness and, and lost sight of that importance to really see the students in front of us. Let's get into a couple smaller, uh, well, could be smaller answers. Do you have a favorite app, a favorite website, or or any other media that um, that you really like, either personally or professionally? Mm. You know, I have to say, professionally, I really love Twitter. I do. <laughs> um, the ability to build a professional learning network on Twitter as an English teacher and as an instructional coach has been really powerful. You know, just finding those hashtags to follow, following those accounts that lead you to other thinkers and connect you to teachers around the world that to be honest with you for me professionally that's been a huge huge advantage game changer that's awesome uh this one i've been having a lot of problems people can't narrow the field okay Uh, but you have a book that you love that you either quote or you tell people to read or you give to people or you think about i have to pick one you have to pick we'll let you have one or two okay because i'm an english teacher so (laughs) i mean i'm an instructional coach but i'm an english teacher um, I would say, to be honest, uh, The Art of Possibility by Rosamond Stone Zander and Benjamin Zander really changed the way I viewed everything when I read it. I was doing my master's and we had to do a report in a book and I, I brought it back flagged. Like there were so many stickies, it looked like it was tasseled. Um, so I would say that's a really good one in terms of just reframing our perspectives and looking at things through really optimistic lenses, you know, abundance versus scarcity. It's it's a real beauty for life and for work. Um, and I, I do constantly refer back to Carol Dweck and her work on mindsets. I think that that just underscores the work we would do with student learners and with adult learners. So I would say both of those are, are total pickups for sure. What's one thing that you do every day or most days that you think, um, helps keep you well and healthy? I am a hundred percent unashamed of the fact that I have an old lady bedtime and it's totally okay. Eight, eight to nine hours of sleep a night. I know it seems ridiculous, but it's absolutely essential. Yeah. Good sleep every day. You're not the first person to say that. Okay, good. I I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so, so lastly, and this can be uh, a recent, or this could even be a longer term, but do you have an organization or a person that really inspires you? Hmm. 
I'm really inspired by people who um, live creatively, who find ways to innovate and transform. And so I'm really inspired um, by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who um, wrote Hamilton, the musical, not an educational figure, but someone who has taken these improbable kind of circumstances and turned them into these incredibly creative outlets. And somebody who, through his Twitter, um, seeks to just bring kindness to the world. He has these good morning and good night posts he puts out every day and a book he's released that just remind me about taking, you know, taking care of each other and being kind. So I'm very inspired by him for that, but also anyone who just exhausts their creative potential in every way they can. And he, he totally does that. So I would say him. Awesome. Um, what don't know what's next for you. What are some of the problems you're looking at? What are some of the, the, the things you're looking to learn more about? What are maybe some of the projects you're working on? I'm really, um, I'm really intrigued by the idea of cross-curricular professional learning communities. That's something mm-hmm. that for me personally and professionally, I'm just really kind of digging into how do we empower teachers to have conversations with other teachers across schools, across grades, across curriculum, moving that conversation to pedagogy, um, activating collaborative partnerships that maybe we wouldn't anticipate. So that's something I'm really passionate about. Um, I'm really excited about whole school literacy as an English mm. teacher. That's something I'm really, I'm really digging into as well. Um, and I'm also, again, an English teacher answer, but really excited about disrupting text and really looking at the literature we study in high schools, especially through new lenses of representation and, and analysis. So I can't, I can't leave the English nerd stuff out. It's got to come up. I love it. They're totally integrated. (laughs) Now, uh, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Let's say they want to uh, reach out, talk about instructional coaching or just nerd out on English. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. What's some of the best ways that they can, uh, they can meet up with you or connect with you? Yeah. Definitely Twitter. Um, at Miss J Waring, W A R I N G on Twitter is a great way to get a hold of me. That sounds great. Cool. I want to thank you so much, Jen. Thank you. uh, Yeah. Just love it. And, uh, I think that you not only talked about some practical things about instructional coaching, but I think you just, your passion for professional learning, just love it. It comes out. Appreciate that, Corey. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intersection Education Podcast. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi, or Blackfoot, Métis and Dakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and respect this land.